The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Day two of AFC East Week is here. It is Dolphins Day here on the Bootleg Football Podcast. We're going to be talking about everything that the Miami Dolphins have done between now and January, last January, to get ready for the upcoming season. And boy, they have done a lot. Uh, this is the the quintessential all-in team for this year. Every single chip they had is on the table. They are. They're going for it while they still can, and uh, I respect it, but before we get into all of that, we have a lot to go over today. EJ, my wonderful co-host, buddy, how you doing? What are you drinking tonight? I'm great. I'm excited about this particular team. I'm excited about how the series is going so far. We've, we've seen some of it roll out now. We're a couple of weeks ahead in content, but some of it has actually been released upon the public, and, and folks are digging it, and that just makes me want to drive that much harder. So this is a fun division, really fun team within a fun division, and tons of storylines, so we should probably just blaze right into it. But as we are recording on a Friday night, <laughs> heading into a long weekend, what do you have to drink? Uh, I'm back to the cognac for me tonight. I, I hit rum okay. a little bit. I've done some rye. I'm like, you yep. know what? It's AFC East week. It's my favorite week. Of, one of my favorite weeks of this whole series. I'm going to hit the cognac. So I got my, my Hein Rare for any cognac fans out there. Supposedly the Queen's favorite cognac. So uh, anyway, we're going to start this off same way we do every single episode. A little bit of a 2021 recap. How we got here. Uh, setting the stage for everything they've done this offseason. 2021 was, I, I don't really know how, how else to categorize it other than a little bit of a disappointment because it started off so wrong and then ended so right. Uh, it, it was it was a disaster in the first half of the season, and then all of a sudden they, they turned it on um, in the second half and they became one of the hardest teams to beat in the league. And... I think they started one and seven, if I recall correctly, and then ripped off seven wins, which is unheard of. Uh, they had a couple really big ones uh, against marquee teams that that Ravens game where they threw zero at Lamar Jackson like thirty five times in one game was nuts. Like just the, the the first half of the Dolphins versus the second half of the Dolphins, I've never seen anything like it before. But they ended up with a nine and eight record overall. 
finished third in the division, six and three at home. Miami, notoriously hard to play in, by the way. Uh, but three and five on the road. Last five, as I mentioned, uh, four and one in that stretch. Barely missed out on the playoffs. But it was fascinating to me to see, like, week nine on the team that we thought we were getting compared to the first eight weeks of the season. Felt like they had way too much talent to have the first half of the season that they had. And I know this is no news to Finns fans. They had to sit through all that and and tear their hair out watching it. But it was cool to see the turn because we've seen plenty of teams um, just have tons of talent and not make the turn and just muddle to a terrible finish, wipe out the coaching staff. That happens somewhat regularly in the NFL. It is very strange to see a singular point where a team turns and all of a sudden it's wins, wins, really tough games, even if it's not a win, you know, giving people who are quote unquote, much better teams than them, absolute fits on the field and starting to have fun, starting to play loose, starting to play fast, starting to be attacking and aggressive on defense, starting to see some of the rookies from last year, like Javon Holland really come on and make a ton of plays down the stretch. That stuff's all fun for us as football fans to watch. So it got really interesting, and then they decided to go a different direction after all of that. I don't think we are going to know the real story behind what happened um, with Brian Flores and Tua and th- this weird Tom Brady angle that popped up that nobody can really corroborate, and yet people are treating as like absolute truth. I have no idea what was going on there. All I know is whatever it was was messy, and it led to where we are now, which is arguably the Dolphins being in a better spot this year than they were last year, and they were already a very tough team to beat. They reshuffled a lot, but I don't necessarily think they went backwards in any particular way. Like I like Flores as a coach a lot, not going to lie. But I also like Mike McDaniel as a coach too, so... It, it sucks that it this happened. It sucks that this change needed to be made. And I don't even know what the circumstances behind it really were. Again, I don't know if we ever will. But in terms of, you know, falling out a window and landing on your feet, uh, I, I feel like they absolutely did that. So credit to them for figuring it out, I guess is the way to put it. <laughs> you know, figure, completely uh, winging the, the offseason. Yes, yeah. yes. Out of the um, frying pan, but missed the fire, you know, landed. Completely missed the fire. Yeah, landed on solid ground and walked away. So good for them because, again, we see teams go from bad to we just need to make a change for change's sake, and it's worse. Uh, not the case here. Kind of reminds me of the Colts where, it, like, the McDaniels thing happened, and they're like, yeah. okay, I guess we'll hire Frank Reich, and then that ended up being a better decision anyway. So some teams just get lucky that way. Uh, but let's let's kind of talk about that power structure since we're on the topic. Uh, GM Chris Greer already in year seven, and you and I have been a big fan of a lot of the moves that he's made in the past. He has caught a lot of criticism for some decisions that he's made in terms of roster building, but overall, we're still looking at a very talented team here. So I I, I would still take Chris Greer over a lot of GMs in the league because of just looking at the roster that they've got, which we're going to break down kind of aspect by aspect, component by component here. Uh, Mike McDaniel, as we mentioned, first year at head coach there. If you were going to replace Brian Flores, who you and I like a lot with anybody, I think Mike McDaniel is one of the primo candidates to do that. 
really brilliant offensive mind. Um, he's been Kyle Shanahan's right-hand man going back to Houston, like in, in the 09-ish era with Matt Schaub and Andre Johnson. Like he's been there every step of the way. Um, one of the architects of that extremely versatile run game that Kyle Shanahan's always had. Like it wasn't just Kyle there. Like Mike McDaniel was a big mm-hmm. piece of that as well. Um, and I, I think that that he's going to be a, a great presence for that team, not just in terms of game playing, but in terms of locker room management, culture setting. I've never met anybody that didn't like Mike McDaniel, and I've now talked to seven people that have interacted with him, that know him, that have worked with him. They all speak extraordinarily highly about him. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed for that hire. And then the coordinators under Coach McDaniel, you got Frank Smith, uh, first year at offensive coordinator for them. Josh Boyer, uh, first year as full DC, but fourth with the team. Again, he also kind of comes from that Patriots tree. He was a DB coach uh, under Flores and Belichick in New England, followed Flores to Miami, was the defensive pass game coordinator, and I believe also cornerbacks coach for them. Um, But he survived the transition from Flores because, again, he's a very good coach. And the defense was absolutely not an issue. So they're like, hey, why fix when ain't broke? Let's keep Josh Boyer there. And then Danny Crossman also survived the transition. He's in his fourth year with the organization as well. So even though there was a shakeup, they didn't shake up the entire staff. And they kept the guys that worked. They kept the guys that had like really, really you know, top-tier performing units decided not to just replace everybody for the sake of replacing everybody. And uh, I think that continuity is, is going to serve them well. I think it's a smart move by McDaniel and also an acknowledgement that he realizes going from where he's been to where he is now as a head coach, not necessarily geographically, but in that power structure, we've talked about this, where coordinators can be very good coordinators, but you get to be the head coach. Now you're the face of the franchise. You're answering for everything. You're managing not only all the players, but also your entire staff. This is an acknowledgement by McDaniel. Hey, if we cannot you know, upset the entire apple cart here. If we can keep pieces and coaches that know players in place and are effective, I can concentrate on bringing my gifts to the offense and being a head coach and not have to worry so much about the other two phases um, because those guys have been here. They know the players. They have a system, to your point, that's working quite well. It seemed a wise move. So many coaches come in and just say, I just want my guys. That's all I want is my guys. Right? I want to be surrounded by my guys. And this was a move by McDaniel to say, guys that are here were pretty darn effective. And if I like them, if I sit down with them, get to know them as coaches and say, can you keep doing what you're doing? You know, Are we going to be able to work together? And they say, yes, it takes a lot off his plate. Um, they can help him learn the organization, the players, the structures, and the things that work on that side of the ball, and he can focus where his real gifts are. In terms of notable coaches, uh, we've talked about some teams that have a lot of former players on their staff. (laughs) This one might take the cake, man. They Top to bottom, tons of them. A lot. So on offense, Daryl Bilville, uh, Daryl Bevel just keeps popping up. He's like a jack-in-the-box. He's <laughs> everywhere. He's been on a lot of staffs. He was in Seattle. He was in Jacksonville. So for Mike McDaniel's staff, Daryl Bevel is the quarterback's coach and the passing game coordinator. Um, he's been a former OC on the Hawks, the Lions, and the Jaguars. So brings a ton of experience, and not necessarily from the same tree, 
uh, as McDaniel, which can be really useful for alternate viewpoints of, hey, how would you attack this piece? Um, Eric Studsville is a running backs coach, been around for over 21 years of NFL coaching experience and has coached a lot of very productive and very good running backs. Uh, here we get into the former players. Wes Welker, a name that most people will recognize, is coaching wide receivers for the Dolphins, former wide receiver himself with the Dolphins, Patriots, and Broncos. And one that caught you off guard, Aldrick Robinson is an offensive <laughs> assistant. So former wide receiver with the Ravens, Falcons, 49ers, Vikings, and Panthers, you know, not that long ago, which is why it sort of spun your head a little bit. But, you know, two former players, well, three former players there, uh, well-traveled O.C., that's that's a lot of help for a guy that is already acknowledged as being one of the more brilliant offensive minds uh, in the modern NFL. So that's a I was I don't know about you. I was pretty impressed by the staff he built, especially for when he was hired in the process. I wasn't quite sure uh, how he was going to draw. And I think he and Brian Dable sort of drew really strongly. Um, they put together great staffs. So, uh, you know, I think it does help to have coaches that that connect to players on that like shared experience level of like, you know, Wes Welker's former All Pro, you know, led the league in receptions for a few years, um, you know, climbed to the highest mountaintops with Tom Brady. Like he's he's that dude. So when he talks, people listen. You know, Aldrick Robinson. Seems like just yesterday he was playing for McDaniel uh, in Atlanta. They went to a Super Bowl together there, too. So mm-hmm. I think it helps to have guys that have had a lot of success in the league to be the ones that are coaching because consciously or unconsciously, players take it seriously when when guys that had that much success are telling them to do something. <laughs> well, they better listen on defense then because <laughs> <laughs> when you get to the defense and special teams side, Sam Madison and Patrick Sertan. Like mm-hmm. Sam Madison's the cornerbacks coach and a pass game specialist, former NFL cornerback with the Dolphins, of course, and the Giants at the tail end of his career. Patrick Sertan is a defensive assistant, so a more general title, a floater, if you will, uh, can go around and help different parts of the defense. Former NFL cornerback as well was Sam Madison's running mate with the Dolphins uh, and also played with the Chiefs at the end of his career. So, and then we get Steve Ferentz, and if that name sounds familiar, it is because, yes, that's the son of longtime Iowa coach Kirk Ferentz. He's coaching linebackers for McDaniel's staff. And Ricardo Allen, <laughs> like, wasn't Ricardo Allen just playing? And the answer is yes, he was just playing. Former NFL safety for the Falcons and Bengals, played for the Bengals as recently as last year. So that's a lot of player firepower, a lot of longtime NFL coaching firepower. And not that McDaniel necessarily needed it. Again, he's been on very successful staffs and attached to Kyle Shanahan's hip at every stop since Houston. Um, And they've had a lot of success, which ended up with Shanahan as the head coach of the 49ers. McDaniel brings all that and all this to the Miami coaching staff. I'm I'm excited about the group. We talk about a relationships based coach when we talked about the Panthers last week uh, with Matt Rule. I think McDaniel's in that same vein where he hired a lot of people that he knew, that he trusted, that he spoke the same language of, that he'd worked with before. I think the staff is going to work because I think a lot of these guys have known each other for a long time. Either they played together or they've coached together before. If there was ever a, a transition team under a new regime that was going to hit the ground running, I think it's this one because they all know each other for years. 
Yeah, if the players the players hook in quickly and from all the all the things we're hearing out of Miami so far in the offseason and look, it's all sunshine and roses for every team right now. Hope springs eternal in the offseason, but they seem legitimately jazzed. They are excited, especially on the offensive side of the ball. We've heard more from those folks because that's where the focus is again. The defense was very good. Um, they haven't been doing as much media, but the offense been pretty vocal about the fact that they're enjoying life. They're excited. They're embracing the system. They see the potential for it to really go off. And when you have that kind of excitement from the players, which again is pretty typical in the offseason and a coaching staff that could gel very quickly, you've got the recipe for a team at least avoiding hopefully a really cold start that could sort of doom them for the rest of the year like it did last year. Uh, and coming out of the gate, you know, at least splitting, if not a little bit hotter and getting on a roll early. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash match. Just go to indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, in terms of uh, free agency losses, again, this is another one of these rosters that just churns and churns and churns and churns. They're always going through guys. Um, they replaced 60% of their receiving core, I would say. And not all of them played all the snaps um, last year. Like Will Fuller only played 5% of the snaps, but he's still a notable loss because it's Will Fuller. Like Either when he's been healthy or he's been not suspended, Will Fuller ha has had a lot of success in the past. So he's a notable quote-unquote loss just on his name um you know Devonta Parker got traded played half the snaps for them last year and again when he's been healthy I think that he's been a very quality starter in the league uh Mac Hollins is gone uh, Albert Wilson is gone pretty much the only receivers left on the roster that have had significant snaps with this team in the last year is Jalen Waddell. Like, Preston Williams is back, but again, Williams has had injury issues himself over the years, and, and Lynn Bowden has he's been not not particularly as impactful as maybe we hoped when he was coming out of the draft. But it's Jalen Waddell and then, like, five new guys <laughs> this year. So it was it was interesting to me just kind of looking at this list in addition to, obviously, like, Philip Lindsay and, and all them, and, and, you know, Jacoby Brissett's gone now too. They really looked at the receiving core and was like, we're going to attack that, but before we do, we got to get rid of everybody, and they did. Yeah, seven wide receivers left, the Dolphins. Uh, considering how many players you hold on a roster, and again, not all of them were healthy and so not on the active roster, but like seven wide receivers left the Dolphins. That's more than 60% of a wide receiving core. You don't carry you know, 13 wide receivers on a team. Uh, so massive turnover in that particular area. There's a couple of other role players that, you know, again, didn't play super significant snaps. Um, but, 
the wide receiver area was an area of focus in free agency in terms of losses. We'll talk about the other skill positions on offense and how they turned those over as well, uh, you know, with some different mechanisms. But that to me is the highlight of the losses is they basically looked at their wide receiving core and went, nope, <laughs> like we'll keep the guy that got drafted real high and then we're going to work. Also, do want to mention uh, Jason McCourty's no longer there. Had a lot of experience uh, in this system. Uh, Malcolm Brown is no longer there as like their fourth running back, but they still have six capable guys on the roster anyway, so that's not a big deal. Um, looking at Duke Johnson, he's also gone, but as I mentioned, they they just keep churning the running back position just like they do with receiver. A lot of turnover on the offensive side of the ball because that was the problem with their team last year. Uh, Greg Mance is gone, but he, they had like three other guys that were capable of playing center and they have two other guys right now capable of playing center. So there was no need to keep him. Um, and then Vince Beagle, who was there for, for a little while, didn't, didn't really play last year, but he, uh, he was part of that a couple of years ago, at least part of that kind of like rotational linebacker group. Um, so tons and tons and tons and tons of, of churn, in terms of guys they retained, you know, these are the ones they prioritized. Uh, Sam Egelvon, speaking of linebackers, he was really, really, really an impact player, even though he didn't play a massive number of snaps. Um, he only played like 16% of the snaps. When he's on the field, you feel his presence. He's a very underrated player, in my opinion. Has had some durability concerns, obviously, but um, in terms of uh, all the, the kind of crazy pressures that they like to bring in that system because they like to man you up and bring pressures. Sam Egwavon is an extremely well-coached linebacker when it comes to how to execute their pressure packages. Very underrated in that regard. If you watch how he blitzes, but more importantly, how he sets up blitzes for everybody else within the call, he's extremely good at that. That's why they brought him back, even though he's 29 and didn't really play a whole lot for them. He's a valuable piece for them, at least on third downs alone. Uh, Xavier Howard, you know, he, he's a little a little longer in the tooth these days, but still one of the best corners in the league. So you got to keep him, especially for a defense that you can't really run unless you have good corners. So he's a priority for them. Salvin Ahmed, uh, <laughs> a bootleg favorite from uh, from my co-host. Uh, they brought him back to be one of their, like, nine running backs this year. Uh, Nick Needham, Mike Isecki, they brought back at tight end. Emmanuel Agba, again, very effective edge player for them in that system. Uh, and then Alandon Roberts and Durham Smythe as well, although those strike me more for um, for uh, in terms of when they go into, like, all the, the 13 personnel. Durham Smythe is specifically brought back just for that. And then Alandon Roberts, again, kind of – they, they – they platoon their linebackers a lot on this team, too. Even if he's a starter, quote-unquote, he's not going to be a full-time player them, for them. So uh, he's more of a rotational linebacker is the best way to put it. So, again, uh, you could really tell where they prioritized spending their money. They wanted to keep the defense together, and they wanted to churn the offense. And I think that really came through. Yeah, this retention class, if we want to call it that, comes down to where they drop the big dollars. Xavier Howard was never going anywhere for them. They like him as a player. He's very important to their system. They bring him back $18 million a year. They look at Emmanuel Agba, and they say, you're the guy out of, of all those guys on the defensive line. He 
I don't want to say he had a resurgence, but he, I think he hit the efficiency that a lot of people that liked him coming out in the draft thought he could uh, under that in that Miami defense. They pay him 16-3. And then Mike Gusecki is really their unicorn at tight end. He's the <laughs> one in that room that can do – everything for them in terms of pass you know catch passes in the red zone get down the seam he's fluid enough even at his size to operate out towards the sideline he's big enough that he can block the others are more much more role players like you said these are guys that come in in multiple tight end packages that and not unlike san francisco right if you're looking at that system right you're bringing in your second tight end as a blocker as a heavy uh, as a move guy that, again, has to get one leverage block on the edge to make sure that alley's open for the one cut-and-go outside zone run scheme. So those three guys were the majority of the money they spent, and then they grabbed other pieces that were important to them at much lower rates, but those were their priorities. Don't let those guys out of the building. And they, you know, we can call this a success because they retained them, I would say, at reasonable rates, and all three of those guys play very important roles at priority position certainly corner and edge rusher and in their case the number one tight end is a priority form as well now in terms of uh third party additions here uh again the the theme of roster churn on offense while keeping the defense together holds true here pretty much all of their key signings from other teams other than one which was melvin ingram as a rotational edge um Every other one was on offense. Raheem Mostert, you know, coming in to be, uh, you know, if, if they kind of wanted to go like a slash and bash approach with their run game like they did in San Francisco, even though Mostert is 30, he's still probably faster than 90% of the running backs in the league. So give him 10 carries a game, see what happens. Maybe even eight carries a game and see what happens. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater to be that, you know, veteran uh, stable backup is the complimentary term I think we're using now. Uh, Chase Edmonds, I, I think, honestly, is going to be RB1 for them. Would not be surprised at all. Uh, he was not underutilized in Arizona because it, that's that's borderline John Connor slander. Not John Connor, James Connor slander. This is <laughs> he, he, plays, he plays like the Terminator, <laughs> so go for it. Because uh, yeah. Connor was very, very good for them. And so Edmonds was, was never going to out-snap Connor. But that being said, every time Edmonds was on the field... You could just feel the juice that he gave to that Cardinals offense. And so I think that he was a key signing for them. And only $6 million too. And where as soon as he signed, I was like, that's that's perfect. I think he's going to end up getting the most touches out of any of their running backs because he is just juice on juice on juice. Tyreek Hill was the big one. You know, massive trade, massive trade. I kind of want to do a little aside after I go through the list and talk specifically about Tyreek because I do want to get on my soapbox about that. Uh, Connor Williams, who is projected to be a center for them, by the way, Mm -hmm. had a little bit of an issue in terms of snap accuracy in Dallas when they put him at center. Um, Center quarterback exchanges were, were a problem there, but that's also... Partly maybe because he was mostly a guard and maybe he wasn't super used to it. You have to practice a lot. We'll see if that holds true in Miami, but just keep an eye on that. Um, if there's some fumbled snaps early on in the year in Miami, um, we, we might see a change back to Dieter at center because Mike McDaniel's not going to put up with that for long. 
Cedric Wilson Jr., speaking of the Cowboys, brought him in to be their new wide receiver three, and he is a very, very, very good wide receiver three. One of the best ones in the league, in my opinion. Super reliable, Mr. Consistent. Love Ced Wilson. Alec Ingold, ass kicker extraordinaire at fullback. Wouldn't be a Mike McDaniel offense without being able to run 21 personnel and just cram it down your throat. He's going to run in and do that. Uh, Sony Michelle. Again, banger in between the tackles. If we're going for that slash and bash style, he's the bash in that combination. And then the big one, Teron Armstead. This was a team that was woefully (laughs) unprepared at tackle last year. Uh, They were running a combination of Liam Eikenberg at left tackle and Jesse Davis at right tackle, and they gave up like a combined 115 pressures somewhere in that ballpark and like 16 sacks. It was gross. It was terrible. Uh, that they don't have to deal with that any longer because now Jesse Davis is gone. Uh, Eichenberg is at guard, and Teron Armstead's going to be your new left tackle. Thank God. For Tua's sake, thank God. So, again, this is a lot of signings on offense, but I really wanted to, to convey just how much turnover they have on that side of the ball. Yeah. I'll let you go on your Tyreek soapbox, and then I'm gonna we're gonna play a game with their offensive line or projected offensive starting five on on the O line, and then I want to talk about wide receivers or sorry, not wide receivers, running backs. I'll let you talk about wide receivers for the most part. Although I'll say one thing about said Wilson before you get there, which is seven freaking million. <laughs> Are you nuts? That's it. Like yeah. Russell Gage got ten, and Cedric Wilson Jr. got seven. Like. <laughs> said Wilson is he makes their wide receiving trio stand up against anybody because I would take said Wilson Jr. right up there with the great threes in the league Tyler Boyd like I think he's on that level um, easily in that conversation and he's getting seven million dollars so great job by Chris Greer and his staff to get in ahead of the ever-changing wide receiver market that we've seen in the offseason but go off on your soapbox about Tyreek and then we'll talk Offensive line and running backs. Okay. This is going to sound crazy because a lot of people have been dunking on Miami ever since this trade was made. Why would you put Tyreek Hill with a quarterback that struggles with the deep ball? Mm Because I think it's a fair comparison to say that Tua reminds one a lot of Jimmy G, even if his arm isn't crazy. um, I think he is a little bit more accurate down the field than Jimmy is. But regardless, people were clowning on Miami because Tua is not known for being the guy that can grip it and rip it 40 yards down the field five times a game and throw all these crazy bombs like Josh Allen and Mahomes. And he's especially not somebody who can do it without his his feet planted <laughs> where he can you know generate all the power. Like he's not going to be the guy that's throwing 50 yards while running, you know, scrambling outside the pocket. Like that's not his game. He almost never does that, whereas Pat Mahomes does. And I think it, it's, it, it frustrates me because people only remember the highlights. They remember Pat backing 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage and throwing it up on Wasp. And, you know, the ball travels 65 yards down the field and they win the Super Bowl because of it. They remember Pat evading pressure and, you know, retreating and retreating and throwing some bullshit ball again, 50 yards down the field against Houston and Tyreek goes up and skies over people and catches it. They remember that, and they say, or at least in their mind, they feel like it happens every game. It doesn't. It might happen once every, like, three weeks. 
And the Chiefs did not base their offense around that throw. They really didn't. In fact, most of the time when it did happen, in terms of these deep balls to Tyreek, it was on broken plays. Yeah. And yeah, Mahomes does have the arm and the mobility to still throw the ball 50 yards down the field on a broken throw or on a broken play, and Tua doesn't. But no offense is going to be based around that. And it happened at most nine times a year, maybe. And so I think there's this misconception that Tyreek and Tua can't work because those crazy broken throws either won't happen at all or just won't happen as much. And they're not taking into account the fact that Tyreek is also one of the best yak threats in the league. So all of this quick game stuff they do with RPOs and you're getting the ball to somebody in space and you take off and run, they built their receiving core around that. Waddle, Cedric Wilson, and Tyreek are all great yak threats where if they want to get an explosive play, it doesn't need to be 20 yards down the field. You throw it to them behind the line of scrimmage or within the first five yards past the line of scrimmage. They can still get 20 yards on that. That's how the Chiefs beat Buffalo. It was freaking cover two, and they throw it over the middle of Tyreek, and he just takes off and houses it. So this notion that Tyreek can't work in Miami because they can't, quote-unquote can't, throw it 65 yards down the field, who cares? There's not an offense in the league that's based around that throw. Their offense is still based around something that Tyreek does well, which is get the ball in space, turn his shoulders upfield, make somebody miss, and still get 30 yards anyway. So my soapbox is just because one element of Tyreek's production in Kansas City won't be replicated in Miami doesn't mean that he won't have the same overall production because Miami is still going to lean into the other stuff that Tyreek does really well, and he'll probably get the same amount of yards just in a different way. I do not disagree. And people forget, especially people that are not Kansas City fans, that Tyreek Hill has evolved his game. When he came in, he was always a speedster. He was always fast, and he was always going to catch deep balls and and have those highlights and run away from people because he's legitimately one of the 10 fastest receivers in the league, probably one of the top five fastest receivers in the league. He's really, Ever, by the really way. quick. Oh, Ever. Yeah. <laughs> he's really, really fast. He's gotten bigger. Like a couple of years ago, I remember you and I having this conversation that he's bulked up, he's changed his body, he's worked on all the other things to round out his game. That was that was bread and butter when he got there. Was, you know, run across, beat a guy, get yak, and just take off. And you watch him work around the sidelines. He is tough. He is physical. He is good with his feet. He is good with his hands. He's a complete receiver. The problem is for Dolphins opponents they have two of them like mm -hmm. Waddle's really fast too so now usually you've got one corner that's a little bit faster than the other very few teams have two blazing fast corners you usually have a bigger guy tougher guy he might be fast too but then the other guy hey he's a, he's really good with technique he's you know he's physical he runs four or five and he's effective that way you got a guy that runs four or five on either one of those players. You're in, you're going to be in trouble because McDaniel's going to make sure of it. And I think if people are making a mistake about your soapbox, it's that they're focusing on Tyreek's former team and not McDaniel's former team. Mm -hmm. Because McDaniel's former team is the Niners. 
and they built their wide receiver production around Yak with Debo as a wide receiver. I'm not talking about the running back stuff. And with Brandon Ayuk, the reason they they drafted Brandon Ayuk is because with the ball in his hands, he was one of the most competitive receivers I've come out seen come out in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Like he will not go down. And they were like, hey, that's our guy. You get him a five yard whatever and watch him turn it into 13 or 18 because he is fast and he's fluid and a good receiver, but he's extremely competitive. So look at that system and say more of that's going to be coming to Miami than Kansas City because the coaching staff didn't come from Kansas City. The receiver did, but he's going to get plugged in and used in a different system. So I would agree with you. And the thing that threatens, I think, opposing defenses most is there's two of them and they're both blazing fast waddle is legit really really fast as well and said wilson like you said is and i said is no slouch um so if you start concentrating on hey we're going to create this entire system to shut those two guys down gasecki said wilson and the running game is going to massacre you and mcdaniel knows it so I'm going to pivot to the offensive line for a second and their projected starting five. So if you're not a Dolphins fan, maybe not listening to this, but maybe you are. Their projected starting five going left to right. Teron Armstead, Liam Eikenberg, Connor Williams at center, Robert Hunt, who they got out of Louisiana at right guard, and Austin Jackson from USC at right tackle. And offensive line was a big problem for the Dolphins (laughs) last year. We know understatement this. of the century. <laughs> it is, but now we're gonna play a little game. Okay, because you're better at these games than I am. Uh-huh. We're gonna talk about draft capital on that offensive line. So, ooh, okay. Teron Armstead, which round? Third. Now, nailed it. Third. Yeah. The reason he went in the third it was like, oh my god, Teron Armstead is one of the best tackles in the NFL. Why did he go in the third? Because he went to Arkansas Pine Bluff. One of the highest say, drafted, very small school. Yeah, one of the highest drafted small school players in recent history. Um, Eichenberg, which round? Second. Correct. Nailed it. So far, you're two for two. You're going to be Jeopardy double champion before this is over. Connor Williams, what round? Uh, second round for Dallas, somewhere in the fifties. Yeah, second round. Nailed it. Robert Hunt. I believe he was a second round pick too. Uh-huh. uh-huh and jackson austin jackson usc uh late one yep right? surprise first rounder you five out of five, five baby five <laughs> you didn't even have to phrase him as a question you win yeah. the grand prize so that offensive line is now third with a guy that's you know if we redrafted would be the first second 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 first yeah not too many offensive lines in the NFL end to end don't have less than a third round pick on them. Yeah, and that third they're, round they're... pick is a unanimous first round pick if we redraft. So well, I find it funny their line... best player is also the lowest drafted one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's there's there's some reason for that, but at least you know. And we yes, there are questions. I'm not saying because of draft position there are no questions. Never ever will I say that. Connor Williams has got staff issues. Teron Armstead has got health issues. He's got to stay on the field. Eichenberg, I think he's going to be rock solid at guard. Hunt and Jackson, I thought would be swapped. I thought Jackson would be the would be the incredibly athletic, you know, guard a la Lajavira Tucker. And I thought Robert Hunt would be a very fine right tackle. In the building, they switch him. I don't care. Hunt's a big, strong dude. He's going to be a fine right guard. So it feels like as a starting five on paper, 
lot of investment there and should be able to have a lot of success again doing what Mike McDaniels wants to do that he has done at every stop since Houston in terms of that extremely creative and one of my favorite to watch running games in the NFL the designs that specifically Mike McDaniel comes up with and has come up with especially over the last three or four years some really exotic stuff in there and it works and it's so much fun it's extremely complex I'd say even more complex than the most complex passing game and Mm -hmm. it's really fun to watch when it's executed well and now he's the head guy so you bet your ass it's going to be executed well now I want to talk about the guys running behind that line this is a two-part equation okay San Francisco We know they've run four and five running backs deep, and they have been extremely interchangeable. They have gone to their fourth or fifth running back in both of the last two seasons and had that guy be crazy productive for the stretch he was in. They know their type. They they stack a whole lot of them, usually for cheap draft capital. They don't draft them too highly. Um, Many of them were UDFAs as well. So, you know, last year you got Miles Gaskin doing most of the heavy lifting. Gaskin and Salvin Ahmed doing most of the heavy lifting for the Dolphins run game. Now they go get Edmonds, who is very efficient and underrated. And you said it earlier, I think a perfect fit for this system. When they picked him up, he's affordable. And oh my goodness, now we're really going to get to see what he can do in that San Francisco mold. None of the backs that really took off, including guys like Moster, were huge names. They were on their third team right? They were lowly drafted and all of a sudden, holy cow, you know, this guy's been playing for a four game stretch before he gets hurt and he got, you know, 125 yards a game. Oh, okay. They get Sony Michelle who started out not doing a ton at his first stop, ends up going to the Rams, plays a very important role for them down the stretch. And I think a lot of people kind of opened their eyes and went, oh, okay. He's, you know, I think a lot of people, something there. Yeah. yeah, A lot of people thought it was either or, right. It's gotta be Nick Chubb or Sony Michelle. It can be. And, and more people are open to that idea after his stint with the Rams. Mostert, of course, known from San Francisco. We know what he can do in the system. Still blazing fast. Miles Gaskin, who was the lead back last year, is now RB4, at -hmm. least on the initial depth chart. And a guy that we love and we'll talk about during their UDFA haul, which was one of the ones we judged best in the league when we did our pod on it a couple months back, is a Quandre White from South Carolina. When we talked about him, we said the perfect landing spot for him would be a system like San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And guess what? He landed in San Francisco's system. He is crazy fast was really productive just didn't have as many touches as you might like he's he's rb5 he's probably going to be on the practice squad not too many teams hold five running backs on the active roster but if injuries occur as they do at the running back position and if they call people up Look for Zaquandre White to be one of those guys, just like the San Francisco running backs, that comes in from nowhere and has 85 yards in his first game as a pro, and everybody goes, what? Who? Yeah. I think preseason, if your team is thin at running back, say if I'm on the Houston <laughs> Texans, yep, Miami's going to be the team to watch because they're not like they're going to carry four guys max during the year. Uh, the other two are going to be on the practice squad. Um, I believe Gaskin is eligible for it. Uh, Ahmed, I know for sure, still is eligible for it. And obviously, Quan White is eligible, too. They're going to have Edmonds, Michelle, and Mostert on the final 53 is my is my guess. The question is, 
who's the fourth one. Depending on who goes off in the preseason that they don't want to risk on waivers, that's going to be the guy that they carry as the fourth. It could be Quan, could be Gaskin, uh, could be Ahmed. We we really don't know. We're going to have to see what happens in the preseason. But watch watch the Dolphin the second half of these Dolphins preseason games intently because. <laughs> Whichever guy, even if they're all doing well, whichever guy's not going off is going to be on the trade block or he's going to be on on the waiver wire. And other teams are going to be picking whoever doesn't make it because this is a very, very, very talented running back room. So uh, I'll I'll be watching Dolphins preseason games, at least just for that, (laughs) just to see who might be available. Uh Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Um, now, speaking of rookies and young players, small draft class for Miami, but also extremely exciting one. Love their draft class. Only four picks. Uh, didn't have a pick until round three, which, uh, you know, they traded some picks away from uh, one of the guys we talked about. Can't remember who, but... <laughs> Anyways, ra- round three, pick 102. Strangely enough, a compensatory pick from the 49ers. Channing Tindall, linebacker out of Georgia, one of our favorites. I'll let you talk about him after we get through all these. Round four, pick 125, a pick that originally came from the Steelers. Uh, late riser, guy that I really enjoyed watching. Uh, Eric Ezukama, wide receiver from Texas Tech. Had some amazing games if you go back and watch his Texas Tech film. Then they go all the way down to round seven. So they have one third rounder, one fourth rounder, and then they go two picks in the seventh. So extremely small draft class. They really needed that UDFA class we're going to talk about in a minute. But all the way down at 224, they get Cameron Good, the linebacker out of Cal. And then uh, right near the end of the draft, round seven, pick 247, Skylar Thompson, a guy that we got to see at the Shrine Bowl and actually interviewed the quarterback from Kansas State, who's a really interesting fit with them. There's a lot of places where Skylar Thompson could have gone as a you know potential backup or practice squatter where I would have been like, uh, that's a that's maybe not the best place. But uh, Miami with the quarterbacks that they have in Tua and Teddy, like Skylar is a Skylar was a purposeful choice there. They, they do have a type, don't they? They do, and some <laughs> some quarterback rooms you see, okay, we're going to get this guy, and then, look, if this guy comes in, we're going to have to change the offense because he's a very different type, right? Mm, not not the Dolphins, not currently in the quarterback room they have. they got three guys that are uh, have some similarities, some strong similarities. So I thought for a small draft class, especially their top two picks, I absolutely loved. How would you feel about it? So I... I really do think that this was an extremely strong class from Greer, even though at most two of them might end up being contributors at rookies. And I'm saying contributor, not starter. Neither of these guys are starting. But I do think that in terms of future-proofing the roster with depth, so that, let's say, Shedrick Wilson, knock on wood, gets hurt. Ezukama can come in 
and play for them and play a significant amount of snaps as a wide receiver three type, you know, Mr. Third down, Mr. Reliable, you know, being their Jacoby Myers, he can do that. And I kind of like when you watch him at Texas Tech, he actually does remind me a lot of like that, that Myers or Kendrick Bourne archetype where it's like, hey, I'm going to get you four catches a game. They're all going to be first downs. And so I think that he's he's perfect for them as a as probably more outside than inside. Um, also extremely tough in terms of contested catches. Like if they want a guy where I don't know if they throw it from far hash, but if they want to you know work like um like a, a a hitch seam smash combo against too high to the boundary and they and two is like hey this is gonna be a real small hole i'm gonna throw it as high and away as humanly possible and trust my guy to go get it before he gets absolutely fucking annihilated by that safety i need a guy who can make that catch a lot of shorter receivers on the team Ezukama is the guy that they would throw that route to from the slot so i i like him for that because he's a complimentary player to what they already have catches everything tough as shit can line up in multiple places and he will be the third down guy for them uh now Channing Tindall (laughs) I really really struggled with I I tried so hard not to get too hyped about Tindall during the draft season um and by the end of it I I was literally I think I even said it on the show multiple times I was like are we sure he's not the best linebacker on Georgia. Like, are we absolutely sure that it's either Dean or, uh, or who's the kid that green Bay took Walker? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like, are are we sure that it's not Tyndall? Because if you watch all of those guys, Tyndall was the fastest. He was the most explosive. He was the most, I love your term for it, linebackery, linebacker. I was, was going to give you credit for that. I was, <laughs> it was one we coined together because it made perfect sense. It summed up what Channing Tindall was to us. Yes. Is you need these things in a linebacker, and he is the most linebackery of the three. The other two have different strengths. One is taller and you know, arguably faster, but Channing Tindall tested I, very well. I, I don't think arguably, he is faster. That's the thing. <laughs> I know. And then Nicobe Dean, great leader, hyperproductive, you know, really good in a lot of different spots, especially sorting through the trash at his size, going out to the edges. He has a knack to do that that is special. So all three were interesting and good players, but if you were looking for one guy in that group of three very talented linebackers because they did rotate them out and play them in different combinations, Tyndall was the guy that was a linebacker's linebacker, and I mean that in a modern sense, not just the thumper between the tackles. Big, fast, hits, stays square, good reads, effective against the pass in the way that modern linebackers have to be just felt to me like the most ready fit to come into the league and play sort of be system agnostic, right? There are, there are other systems where Nicobe Dean would be your guy. There are other systems, you know, Green Bay obviously thought, yep, we're going to get Walker and he's going to be our guy. They picked him higher than we thought maybe they should. But Channing Tindall, extremely excited that he was there for the Dolphins and that they chose him. And their linebacker room, we talked about how stacked – Chris Greer's made this roster end-to-end. They reworked their wide receiver room. They've got a lot of high draft picks on their offensive line. 
uh, you know, the running back room is five, maybe six guys deep. Their linebacker room is not to be overlooked. You know, you got Landon Roberts. You got uh, we're talking about inside linebackers now. Landon Roberts, Jerome Baker, Channing Tindall, Duke Riley, Calvin Munson, who is a guy that I really liked out of San Diego. Um, your guy, Sam, like there are six guys that can play inside linebacker. Right. And they're all going to play. Every yeah, they all have league. roles. They've all played yeah. within the league and done things. Like that's there's a lot of inside linebacker rooms in the league where you look and it's like, oh, they're top two guys, yeah, for sure. Oh, they're top backup, yeah, he's pretty good. And then you get into the fourth, fifth, sixth guys, and you're like, oh, oh, ah. here you're down to the sixth guy going, no, I I know what he's going to do for them. So to be able to add a guy like Channing Tindall, who I fully expect to be starting in short order because of all the things we just talked about great get great get. i think that it, it he won't start for the first half of the season no because he's a rookie they're keeping the same system they have guys who know it they're gonna play for you know baker and and landon and um you know sam all of them are going to be playing majority of the snaps early on i would not be surprised if by the back half of the season tyndall every single game Getting a little more snaps, a little more snaps, a little more snaps, because especially on third down packages, he's going to be their best linebacker on third down, not just because he's super athletic. So, you know, if they're doing any sort of like zone match stuff and you got to take a guy, you know, up the seam, he's got the speed to do that. In terms of blitzing ability, he is one of the best blitzing linebackers that I've I've seen in quite a while coming out of college. People don't realize he led Georgia in sacks as an inside linebacker and he played half the snaps. He was not a full-time player for them, and he led them in sacks. He had nine. Crazy athlete, very good blitzer, ultra-physical, and he's so damn explosive that when he hits a running back, like, they they stay hit, <laughs> you know? So it's like if somebody's trying to pick him up, it's like, man, you better have a lot of sand in the pants and be square, or he's just going to run right over your ass and get the quarterback, so... I love Channing Tindall. I love that pick. Even though they didn't have a pick till the third round, that was one of my favorite picks for any team in the entire draft. And um, he's going to be a player for them. Yeah, it's a really good way for them to lead off. And like you, I think, uh, I might say by a third of the way into the season, he's going to be playing sub snaps. They're going to want to get him in, get his feet wet. He's going to come in on those sub snaps, make impact. doesn't matter going forward, going backward. And and if he keeps doing that, you know, coaches, it's a meritocracy. They're going to be like, hey, every time Tyndall's in, he makes something happen. <laughs> like, give him a couple more. Give him a couple more. First time he comes in, it might be eight snaps, and then it's 10, and then it's 15. And then it's like, well, maybe you should rest that knee. It's a little bit tweaked. Come on, Tyndall, take the spot. And he's going to be very hard to unseat because he's very sound. Um, he's mentally sound. He's gap sound physically obviously has everything he needs once he starts playing fast in their system it it's over he'll be he'll be one of the top two linebackers for them at some point so small draft class chris Greer and his staff needed to use every possible option we've already exhausted their free agency run which was pretty darn solid this was one of the best udfa classes going wasn't the biggest but if you're talking about efficiency, most players that we are highlighting in the least number of overall players, I think Miami probably leads that category. So 
We're not going to go through all of them, but we're going to go through all the ones we think are notable. We've already talked about Zaquan White. Yeah, we were waiting to see where he was going to go. Again, we said a San Francisco-based system was ideal for him. He ends up in the perfect spot. Tanner Connor. If you listen to our draft coverage, you've heard the name Tanner Connor. Came from Idaho State a lot. <laughs> Maybe too much. Not because we don't like Tanner, but people were like, okay, enough with Tanner Connor. Like, no, no, not enough with Tanner Connor. Really big. Uh, is going to play tight end for them, which is not surprising. Other teams were looking at him as tight end as well because he was 220-plus pounds. And when we said, hey, if you run under a 4-4, you're going to be one of only like three guys in the last 10 years that's been that size and run that speed, he said, I'll run faster than that. And he did. Uh, not <laughs> and jumped like 39 inches too. Like he's a crazy yeah. athlete. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous athlete with great size. And they're going to – seems like they're going to try and make him that move tight end. Braylon Sanders, who was one of Matt Corral's wide receivers at Mississippi. He was the sort of smaller, more athletic one. Uh, Dontario Drummond was the big guy, more the Ezukamna guy, if you're talking about that on the other side. Uh, he was a great guy. I thought for sure he would get drafted late, but I thought he would get drafted. Kellen Deach, one of my favorites, um, Arizona State tackle. Arizona State's a little bit misleading. That was his grad year. He's really a Texas A&M guy. One of the most athletic tackles in the draft. Huh, weird. <laughs> Where did we say he would be really? Oh, that's right, a wide zone system because <laughs> one of the few guys in this draft class that I saw that could pull from a left tackle spot all the way around to the right, lead and get the second level linebacker before the back hit him. He did that consistently. Great movement skills out of Kellen Deej. Uh Blaze Andres, the guard from Minnesota, is going to compete for a backup spot. Again, Chris Gurr just keeps stacking chips. If you look at the offensive line, they have plenty of players. This is just another one. Bring him in, see what he got, see if he can make the practice squad. Maybe he can be one of those guys down the road that earns some snaps for us, and we paid nothing for. Verone McKinley III, safety from Oregon. No idea why he was not drafted. Love to this the day. Fact. Yeah. Love the fact that he ended up uh, – as a UDFA in Miami, playing with his former teammate, Javon Holland, who we love. Great spot, similar skills, I, you know, not as well-rounded as Holland, but we were both extremely high, first-round high on Javon Holland last year. But we both really like Verone McKinley. I would have been comfortable with him late third on mm -hmm. in the right system. By the time you got to day three, gloves are off, take him any time. Didn't get picked. So something going on there. It wasn't his play on the field or his athleticism. Both of those are very good, but he lands in a perfect spot, sits with his former teammate, could be a really athletic pass coverage safety, third safety, not really big enough to be the dime backer role, but if you're playing four and five safety defenses, which you're going to do in the AFC East against Josh Allen, like Verone McKinley can definitely earn a role in the field uh, past special teams. And then the other Shrine Bowl punter, we talked about the last Shrine Bowl punter a couple episodes ago, Tommy Heatherly from Florida International was the one we kept confusing with the Colorado State punter <laughs> because they sounded the same. They would rotate in punter drills the Shrine Bowl, and I was like, man, that guy's racking them too. That's a different number. Who is that? Oh, that's Tommy Heatherly from Florida International. So Dolphins get a specialist. UDFA is a great and efficient way to do it. This UDFA class could have been a second half of your draft class, and I would have loved it. So the fact that they got all these guys, quote-unquote, for free in the draft is a coup by Greer and his staff. 
I, in particular, really love the McKinley pickup. Again, I had him as a, a guy who could have very easily gone day two. And it reminds me of, um, who was it, Ardarius, uh, Ardarius Washington, right, from TCU. Yeah. When he ended up going in a draft and went to the Ravens, we're like, he's going to make the team. And then he made the team. <laughs> uh, yeah, McKinley's making this team. I think he's a perfect fit to go along with Holland. They're very similar guy. Like Holland's faster, a little bit rangier, but McKinley still has range, like a lot of range. Um, Holland's just a fucking freak. So yeah. it's, tough, it's tough to compare anybody <laughs> to him. But um, McKinley's a guy where it's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, we, we really want a, a post safety so that, you know, we have the range to do all that in addition to we want that rangy guy to also have the physicality to come down and play the run so we can play any type of coverage we want. McKinley is that kind of new age, you know, not just a either or safety. He's a both safety mm-hmm. for a long time. You know, when cover three was like the meta of the league, it was like smaller rangy post safety, big, strong quasi linebacker, strong safety. Now it's get you a guy who can do both and get two of them. McKinley is one of those guys. So I think that even though they do have a ton of DBs and safety wasn't necessarily a a big need for them because they still got Brandon Jones, who we like a lot. They still got Eric Rowe, the tight end eraser, Sheldon Runwine. I, I was a big fan of when he was coming out. McKinley's going to make the team because he fits their mold of if we need to blitz him, we can blitz him. If he needs to you know, come down and, and you know, cover hot off the slot because we're bringing the, the nickel on a pressure, he can do that and hold up. If he needs to be a post safety, he can do that. If he needs to fill the B gap you know, in the run fit, he could do that. I think he's going to make the roster because he is just as versatile as all of the other safeties they have on the team. They're going to carry five of them. I think they really will, especially with how often they play nickel and dime. (laughs) They're going to carry five. He's going to be the fifth. And then in a year, um, you know, as, as contracts start to come due and people get expensive, I think Greer is going to be okay with spending money elsewhere rather than retaining the, existing quote-unquote safeties they have because he knows he has McKinley in his back pocket who can come in and start for them eventually especially start on a UDFA salary and they'll be just fine yeah it's it was a master class of combining free agency and again where are we putting those dollars in free agency what are we going to do with losses because losses are a choice you know you're, it's addition by subtraction so where are we going to make those subtractions where are we going to focus in retentions and how many? And then what are we going to add and how are we going to do it? You know, we're, they both gave up folks in trade, got folks in trade, added folks from other teams, retained key folks from their team, uh, you know, used their draft assets to, again, grab folks from another team, use the draft assets they had remaining to fill out the roster, and then said, let's, let's go nuts in UDFA. And... You don't get this many high-quality UDFAs unless the folks coming to your team are excited about your prospects. Yes. you. This is like college recruitment. They can As soon as the draft is over, a player can go anywhere they want, and that can be about money, geography, fit, weather, taxes, all the above. You don't get this many guys that should have been drafted if those folks are not looking at your team going, nah, 
I got a place to play there. That team's going to win some games. I like coaching staff. I like everything else. Like I said, this is easily half a draft class that they just ended up getting for free. And, you know, kudos to them for being able to recruit all those players to come in. Some of them, like you said, with McKinley into rooms that were pretty full. Like you can Mm -hmm. look at the the Dolphins roster again, because Chris Chris Greer has done a great job of filling that roster and say they're five safeties deep. And guy like Verone McKinley, whether it's connection with Javon Holland, familiarity, whatever, he ends up in Miami. It's a great job by that staff. So with all that being said, all the praise we've given them with how they've done UDFA, how they've done draft, how they've done free agency, how they've churned the offense, how they've landed on their feet in terms of hiring a new coaching staff, or at least part of a new coaching staff, floor and ceiling. We have laid for the last hour plus the groundwork for how this is an extremely talented roster that should be an extremely well-coached roster. They happen to play in a very loaded conference in a very loaded division within a very loaded conference. So the operative question of the day, ceiling and floor, is a tough one. You and I, interestingly enough, agreed on ceiling here at 11 wins. A little bit different on floor. You had seven, I had eight. Um, But, you know, it's the same ballpark. I think if a Dolphins fan hears all the praise we've heaped on them for the last hour and says, 11 wins ceiling, that's all you think of this? Do not take that the wrong way. No. It is a function of the fact that you're probably going to split in the division. There's no way around it. The Patriots are good. The Bills are good. The Jets are up and coming. Jets are very talented. And as long as Zach Wilson works out, they're going to be tough to beat too. And you play the AFC North. I mean, your, your, your NFC team that you're playing against is the Vikings. There's a lot of really tough games on the schedule. Future us might know by the time this comes out what's going to happen with the Deshaun Watson suspension. But we, we don't know if they're playing Cleveland with Deshaun or without Deshaun. But if it's with Deshaun... Theoretically, that's a tougher game than if it's Jacoby Brissett playing. So there's a lot of tough games on this schedule. And the fact that we have them at 11-win ceiling is not a function of we don't believe in the Dolphins. It's more so we are being realistic about how insane the AFC slate is this year. This is a team that can win 11 games. And I, I know hardcore Dolphins might be, no, no, they can win 12 or 13. They could but they would have to overcome a lot of other talented teams that are trying to do exactly the same thing, and and two teams can't win the same game. Sorry, that's the way it works. If they gel, if this coaching staff on the offensive side largely gels, because the defensive coaching staff is the same. Defensive players are largely the same. They retained all their big ones. So defense should come out strong. If the offense gets hot, and doesn't go in the hole early, they could roll off to 11 wins throughout a tough schedule because this is a team that could get on top of people easily. They've got offensive firepower all over the board. You and I talked about this before we started recording. This is an excuse-free roster for Tua. You look at that wide receiver core, the fixed offensive line, six deep at running back just the way that, you know, coach wants it and a defense that should largely be returning, this is an excuse for your roster. Now, if they stumble, if the slate is hard, if they don't gel quickly on offense, it could be the seven or eight wins, just not because it's a terrible team, but because they could lose a lot of close games. 
right? Mm-hmm. They have to get a hot start on offense. And if they do, we're talking about double-digit wins even in the AFC, even in the AFC East, which is one of the tougher divisions out there. So, again, it's it's not a knock on the Dolphins or the personnel they put together or Tua or anybody else. It's a little bit of uncertainty, pretty widespread. I've got 11 and 7. That's a That's a pretty big range, but it really comes down to what kind of production they get out of the offense, out of Tua, out of Mike McDaniel's system, and how hot they start on that side of the ball. Well, we're going to find out pretty quick because they play all of their division opponents in the first five weeks. And, oh, by the way, the Ravens and the Bengals, too. No easy games. (laughs) That's what we're talking about. When we say 11 (laughs) wins and you freak out about that, listen to that piece again and go, oh, okay, reality, like, if they came out of that 500 overall, like, that would be pretty good. And then they're going to have to get even hotter rolling into the second half because if we're saying 11 wins, that's only six losses in the new schedule. So, Yeah, their first, like, not even easy game. Their first, like, game that you feel comfortable favoring them, Detroit in, on Halloween or Halloween weekend, you know, and then, and then you got the Bears, and then, it, and then you're right back up shit creek, you know. So it's <laughs> it's a tough year, but... I, th- I do think that they're talented enough that they can still make it work and still make a playoff run. And, and once you get to January, all bets are off. At that point, it's who's healthier, who's on a roll, all that kind of stuff. The goal is just to get to January and then figure out the rest. I, I think they can at least do that. Um, man, fun show. I think our longest I think our longest one so far, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, but there was a lot to go over. There's been a lot of changes. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of hope. And... Um, Quite frankly, I'm terrified of Miami sports fans, so I'm happy this was a positive episode. <laughs> it was a fun episode. It's a fun team. I think it's going to be a fun season. And if you're a if you're a Dolphins fan, that's what you're looking for. And and a couple of these previous episodes, I said, well, it's going to be exciting. Might be good, exciting. Might be bad, exciting. I think generally this is going to trend towards good, exciting um, in Miami. And I. Yeah, when I said I couldn't wait to watch it at the beginning of the episode, it's true. I will be watching Dolphins preseason games. I will be watching, you know, the Dolphins and seeing how they progress through this meat grinder of a schedule and, you know, hoping that they reach their potential because there is so much potential on this team. We'll be back tomorrow with the Patriots and then the day after that, the Bills. And then we're taking a macro look at the AFC East to round out the week. Uh, So come back tomorrow if you're a New England fan or if you're a Dolphins fan that wants to hear uh, some existential dread about what's going on up in New England because we uh, <laughs> we have some questions about what's going on up in New England. Uh, like I said, fascinating division. So come back tomorrow for the Patriots preview. Same time, same place. We love you all. And until then, later. Take care. Take care.